Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, a podcast all about RPGs, the genre that we love. I am your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat. Do you have any snow in your neighborhood yet? <laughs> I live in California and we don't believe in snow. <laughs> we don't believe in snow. You're snow atheists. atheists. We're snow agnostic over here in California. A lot of people actually have snow over here on the East Coast, but uh, Toronto has no snow. It's very, very interesting, whereas some of the southern states have it. No, we just have wildfires over here. Oh, uh, that's that's kind of the opposite of snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, stay safe. So this week, we are continuing on with our console RPG quest. This time, we're looking back on the PlayStation 4, and this is an opportunity to more broadly look back on the trends and events and things that happened with role-playing games, because as we kind of know, the PS4 was the main place to play RPGs this generation. All due respect to the Xbox One, if you want to go listen to our Xbox One episode, that's the last episode. It's the previous yeah, one. Yeah, it's pretty easy to access, but yes, the PlayStation 4, as we will get into, was an extremely important machine for rpgs generation and then next week we will get into the new consoles and their outlook for rpg fans and which ones you should buy in the meantime we will be talking about new final fantasy 16 info a new league of legends rpg and our initial thoughts and trails of cold steel 4 which is now available if you enjoy the podcast, can I enjoy, suggest that you leave a review over on iTunes, Stitcher, over the podcast of your choice? Please follow me on Twitter at the underscore Catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. I'm on Twitch at twitch.tv slash TV. And Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Or sorry, Actung Kitten. Kitten. Actung Kitten. Uh, we also have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Well, Nintendo last week dropped a surprise Nintendo Direct Partner Showcase, and within that showcase was uh, quite a chunk of it was dedicated to the hereunto missing Bravely Default 2. Uh, to nobody's surprise, it is being delayed into 2021. Uh, what kind of made it big news, however, is that um, following the demo that Square Enix released uh, last March, I think it was, they got something like 20,000 surveys completed full of, you know, uh, comments, criticisms, uh, good stuff, of course, praise. And they are taking, much like they did with Octopath Traveler, they are taking all that criticism very much to heart, kind of demonstrating already how they are changing the game compared to the demo, certain things like enemy encounters being rebalanced, uh, difficulty was a big complaint, that's being rebalanced. So, So basically, to sum it up, Square Enix, the team over that are doing Bravely Default 2, they were very, very transparent about where the game is, where it's going, and why it's being delayed into 2021. I think the release date is February 26th. So even though they are delaying a game, that tends to get people you know, up in arms, as we will soon be talking about yet again. They, people were largely, like I say, overwhelmingly accepting and even praising the delay simply because the transparency involved was so appreciated. And that's kind of what my newsletter was about, just generally about how, uh, even though it was a delay, Bravely Default 2 fostered a lot of goodwill by making that delay transparent and explaining why it was happening and what's being changed. And I think that's just, it's just a nice thing when that happens versus the usual rage and, and spite and venom. 
Selfishly, I wanted Bravely Default to be delayed because I didn't want to get it to, it to get buried, and I wanted to be able to have a good opportunity to talk about it. And this way, we will be. We will because it's coming out in February, and I'm pretty sure it'll be in the shadow like of the hype of all that other stuff that's coming out this holiday season. So I'm I'm honestly glad it's being delayed because it would get crushed so easily under the holiday rush. Yeah, I would have been absolutely crushed by Cyberpunk. Even if Cyberpunk ended up not being that good, the sheer rage and like whirlwinds of debate and controversy would just completely overshadow Bravely Default. So this way, it kind of gets its own spot to its own, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, it would, otherwise, it would be literally existing within the windstorms of Jupiter and be torn to shreds. <laughs> <laughs> Keanu Reeves is the great red spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bravely Default 2 was not the only game to see its release date changed. One of them was World of Warcraft Shadowlands, which is now coming out on November 23rd, a couple days before Thanksgiving. Thanks for that, Blizzard. Oh, God. So, uh, yeah, RIP to all you reviewers who have to, like, uh, play it for review, and also RIP to the testers and the programmers who will still be there over Thanksgiving fixing bugs. So, um, hooray. Also, Cyberpunk 2077 delayed again. Delayed. Oh, Cyberpunk is really the target of a lot of of bad press lately, uh, as well as CD Projekt Red. I liked that immediately a Simpsons meme became a thing for Cyberpunk to the point where it's on Know Your Meme, where they took the original tweet, no more delays are happening, and then had Lionel Hutz change it up to, no, more delays are happening, exclamation. (laughs) That was great when they Oh, they screwed this all up. Then no more delays. No more delays. <laughs> I'm a big fan of a good punctuation joke. I I really really love punctuation jokes because I'm usually not clever enough to pull them off. But that's one of the best. Unfortunately, the flip side of that is more crunch. More crunch and denying that crunch is bad, and then turning around and saying, "Oh no, actually, we have to crunch, and crunch isn't good. We're really sorry. We have to do it, but crunch isn't bad." There's a lot of flip-flopping over from the CD Projekt Red leadership about, you know, whether or not crunch is happening and whether or not it's good or bad. I think that This Week in Business, which is the guest column produced by Games Industry, did a really good job of breaking down why crunch is so problematic at CD Projekt. As they rightly point out, crunch is meant to be kind of a spare tire, as it were. Mm -hmm. And CD Projekt has instead treated it as the spare tire that you drive cross-country on. Where you have developers who are working full crunch for like two hours, uh, two years, sorry, two years at a stretch, 10 to 12 hour days, six to seven days out of the week. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. No, that is very, very ridiculous. That is how, that is why we don't have veterans in this industry. They all burn out by the time they're 30 or 40. And it's, it's a huge shame. It's, a, it's, a, it's just ridiculous. And unfortunately, if you read some of the Glassdoor reviews of CD Projekt Red, which you will also find in This Week in Business, you will pe- see people saying, yes, saying, yes, we are crunched extremely badly. And what's really sad is they tell the young people coming in, oh, well, you're so lucky to have this opportunity to work at this prestigious game studio. So you know, if your life isn't all about video games, this isn't the job for you. And it's not fair. There's no job that is worth your health and your life. And there's no such thing as a, a job, like, there's no such thing as, what's the slogan people use? Oh, if you if you have a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. 
That's not true. Work is work. I'm sorry. I love this job, but it's still work. (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoy my job, except when I can't see my friends and loved ones and can never go on a vacation. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Like, it's work is work. Stress is stress. You gotta, you have to decompress sometimes. You just do. Your body is not meant to do one thing for that huge stretch of time. And it's not only, and this is not a new thing. CD Projekt also did it with Witcher 3, and it was a big problem then. CD Projekt just makes it habitual, and that is a leadership failing. It is. It is. Um, you know, we talk about how many studios crunch, uh, AAA studios, pretty much all of them. Are there examples of AAA studios that don't crunch? I feel like there are, but we don't talk about them or they're not really in the spotlight. Ubisoft. Oh, is Ubisoft basically before all its problems? Let's not ignore those. It's still it's kind of crunch French. <laughs> uh, there you go. It all comes down to the union. Like, we're going laws. on vacation in August, and you just come hell or high water. <laughs> deal with <laughs> what it. About, what about the game? What well, about more the, to the game? Point, <laughs> they're able to not have crunch because they have a multitude of support studios that are constantly cycling in and out. Not everybody mm-hmm. has the kind of resources where they can have these gigantic teams with the attendant logistical challenges that come into making sure that it all works. But the one good thing about Rainbow, or not Rainbow Six, Ghost Recon last year, when I was talking to them, it's like they were like, we have no crunch. And I'm like, yeah, but you're putting on new stuff all the time. How are you like maintaining this thing? And they're like, well, we have teams that rotate in and out across the world, and we have a system that is all set up and we know how to make it so people are able to maintain work-life balance while also being able to uh, create a ton of content. Now, Ghost Recon turned out to not be very good, but that's a whole different issue. It's maybe (laughs) the one thing that Ubisoft kind of deserves praise for right now. But uh, as I said before, for all the complaints I hear about Ubisoft, I don't hear too much about crunch. And I feel like you're absolutely right in that most developers don't really have those resources to cycle in and out with different studios. But I feel like CD Projekt Red could probably set something up. There was an article over on Gama Sutra about Assassin's Creed Odyssey called uh, Crunch, Work-Life Balance, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey, a view from the top. And they said, we think that it is a false economy to burn out our teams. We risk losing them or we risk disengaging them, and we will simply not get the best out of those talents if we're forcing them to work insane hours in Crunch. And that's, yeah. there it is right there. Like you will just burn everybody out and they'll want to quit and leave. And then how can you retain, how can you make the best possible games that way? You can't. No, exactly. And that's something I said before. You, this industry desperately needs its veterans and they're just being grounded and paste and thrown out with the idea that, oh, we'll just bring new young people in and they're fresh and, you know, idealist and it'll be fine. But it's not fine because you need people who are experienced. They need that Mm-hmm. sort of experience behind these projects. You can't just keep bringing in souls and disposing of them. Well, it ties into crunch is nothing new. No. Cuz we were talking about the EA spouse stuff back in the 360 days. Ah, uh, good old good old live journal posts. Yeah. Even, maybe even earlier than that. Maybe like back in the PS2 uh Xbox days, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a long history, a long bad history of developers being run to the ground. It's just that I think this generation has been where a spotlight has been really shown on it in a really concerted way. Yeah, and I think maybe part of that is because these game worlds are getting bigger and more complicated and more subject to uh, delays. And, uh, you know, for all the the, the slack, uh, that the uh, sorry, for all the complaints that Schreier gets, Jason Schreier, he's he's the one who usually uncovers this stuff and uh, yes. puts, it out, puts it out there for us to examine. So, 
good for him. Well, he's been he's made it his thing. Okay. Well, let's move on to a happier topic. This says new Final Fantasy 16 art and character info. Joshua controls Phoenix and he has a tiny dog. <laughs> There's Cat reading directly from my notes again and probably a little bit uh mystified I like by your them. notes. They're funny. <laughs> But then he didn't emphasize the delayed on the cyberpunk thing, so yeah. I had to do that for you. Delayed! Anyway, Again. Final Fantasy sixteen. we have some new artwork, we have some new information about the characters. Our main character is named Clive, which kind of caused a stir on Twitter to my great surprise, because I thought it was a perfectly normal name in a franchise that usually gives out the weirdest names. Uh, apparently in the UK, however, Clive is kind of a joke name given to old people. So <laughs> UK listeners, please confirm or deny one way or the other. But here I seem to get a kick out of it. They should have named him Rupert. There you go. There you go. You got to give him something weird. Like, uh, I guess it's kind of like in Canada, Gordon is or Gordy is a very sort of jolly name that you give to people. And it kind of gives you an idea of who a person is just by having that name. But no, I guess Clive is Clive in the UK for some reason. I did never thought of it as a it's not a name it's not a name I see very often over here. How about you? Clive? No. Absolutely yeah, not. I, I don't think I've ever met a Clive, so yeah, I guess I guess I can see where the UK is coming from. Um but yes, Clive is a guy with a sword. He is the brother of Joshua, who is this like little timid kid, kind of cute. He holds a tiny dog in his artwork. And I said to Square Enix, I want to know everything about that dog. Please spare no detail. And I think in the world of Final Fantasy sixteen, if I'm understanding correctly, you have the icons, uh, a.k.a. the summons, uh, a.k.a. espers, whatever you want to call them. And in in like each kingdom, because there are several kingdoms, uh, you get people who are kind of born with this innate power to control and summon these icons. And people in Clive's kingdom thought it was going to be Clive who would be born with this power. But no, it was his brother, Joshua. So that was kind of a surprise because his icon is Phoenix, this very fiery, powerful, violent icon. And he's a little tiny kid with a dog. So I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic. I've always kind of had a, a, a soft spot for stories about really shy, cute little kids who wield enormous power. Uh, have you ever seen Wolf Children? I have not. It's a great anime. One of the characters in that is this little kid named, uh, I think his name is Ame. And he's a very shy, sickly sort of kid who can turn into a wolf. So he has this great power, but he's he's very hesitant and very scared to use it because he's so shy. So I feel like that's kind of where they're going with Joshua, whereas Clive is still... Clive's kind of the big brother role with the sword. He's there to protect Joshua. And they have a childhood friend named Jill. I don't know what her deal is. I guess we'll find out eventually. But the uh, concept art, it, lo- it looks really nice. I'm, I'm really excited for this game. We were talking about Final Fantasy IX on Retronauts. And we were. It should we were. Be, that episode should be coming out in a couple weeks. But one of yeah. the things I was kind of lamenting was that... Final Fantasy IX is like an aspirational game for the series because it's how we kind of want Final Fantasy to look. And I feel Final Fantasy sixteen is just a reminder of how far Square has strayed from that particular ideal, in my opinion. Mm, I don't know. It's not like we've seen a whole bunch of what the game looks like. There could be like different races, different... It's kind of like if you glance at Final Fantasy fourteen, you just see, oh, there's a bunch of humans and elves, but no, you get deeper and there's like... God, cat people and stuff and dragons and all sorts of really cool stuff. 
And I don't know, it's like, I like Final Fantasy IX, but I'm not sitting here pining for the days when we went back to... I complained about Final Fantasy IX and it's animal people. Because it's <laughs> like, you have all these animal people running around, but none of them belong to any sort of tribe or society. They're just animal people. I don't... I'm not necessarily fascinated by that. Uh, I just don't really care if we go back to that sort of aesthetic or not. I liked Final Fantasy because I like the characters, I like the world, but I... Other than Vivi, none of the character designs really... Vivian, of course, Freya. I'm not sitting here like, oh my god, I want these character designs again. Everyone looks like a Gelfling. And they are ba- they are based on Gelflings, and that's why they look like Gelflings. I don't want the art design. I don't want the actual character art, but I do want that lush, brimming with creativity world design that Final Fantasy IX has versus the kind of the grim, dark, medieval look of Final Fantasy XVI. Well, you might get it. I mean, there are several kingdoms that we got to go through in this game. It's true. We shall see. We shall definitely see, because apparently this game's coming out in 2021. Whoa, so soon. See, I told you, didn't I say that it was coming out soon? Yeah, I mean, I believe it is coming out in 2021. As I have said many times before, the Final Fantasy XIV team has its its stuff together. They have their ways. (laughs) They do. They, they, They keep to a schedule. Moving on, League of Legends has an RPG. It was announced some time ago and teased, but we have a new trailer and a little bit of a new info. This is almost sort of a side story, it seems like. It's called Ruined King. It's narrative-driven and turn-based, which I appreciate. I went on a little bit of a rant about turn-based games on Twitter recently. You did. (laughs) I can't remember where. I think I was having a conversation with somebody who said, well, Final Fantasy will never go back to turn-based because Square knows it doesn't sell. And that was like, that triggered something in my brain. And I was like, ah, <laughs> like no, Pokemon, right? Pokemon doesn't sell. Pokemon, no. Pokemon, what a flop. <laughs> but it's based on the League of Legends world, of course. It has a surprising amount of lore, last I checked. Also has a killer soundtrack. Not gonna lie. I watched the trailer that they showed. It, I don't know. I don't like that League of Legends artwork. So it looks a little too wowie. <laughs> it looks crafty. <laughs> wowie. You're right. Wowie, wowie, zowie. Yeah, you're right about the art style. It's kind of for its time. I have to say it was one of the pioneers of that style, alongside Blizzard, as you said. Um, I have never been into League of Legends in terms of the game itself. I've always kind of side-eyed the lore. I always thought it was a very interesting world they have built up. Uh, Once in a while, I hear the music for League of Legends, and it is really awesome. I have to say, I will admit, I am actually a fan of the Imagine Dragons song that they wrote for League of Legends. I think it's called Warriors. I tried to spotlight it once on US Gamer and everyone like booed me out of the arena, but I don't care. <laughs> I did it. As for Ruined King, I guess we'll see. I have no investment in the League of Legends world, but more RPGs for the Blood God. There you go. If Honestly, let's say they take a, a game and they separate it enough from the lore or at least explain the lore in a way that doesn't make me fall asleep or feel lost. Um, I'd probably give it a fair shot. If it's a good game, sure, why not? I, like I said, I think the world's kind of interesting. I think the music's great. And finally, Nadia, you've been playing Trails of Cold Steel 4. You wrote a little bit about it on the site. It's now available on US Gamer, so we were kind of griping about it. We never got a review code, so that made our life a little bit harder. It did. Nadia, you're our Trails of Cold Steel correspondent. What are we hearing from the world? Th- this is the final game, isn't it? The final game in the Trails of Cold Steel uh, saga, the Trails of, I'm sure it will continue in another form, 
And, of course, The Legend of Heroes goes back to the 80s, so that's not going anywhere. But yes, this is the end of Reen's story. Reen Schwarzer's story is coming to a close. The article I wrote was mostly, um, should, can I start this, this series with Trails of Cold Steel 4? And my answer was, no, you will die. Because this is not a, it's, Trails of Cold Steel is not a series where you could, like, just start anywhere because you would think, oh, it's its own little contained story with each game. No, it's not. They all link up. In fact, as people told me in the comments, not only does Trails of Cold Steel 1, 2, 3, and 4 link up to an overarching story, but it goes even further back with, like, Trails in the Sky, which, to be fair, I have not played, but there are references galore in there to Trails in the Sky, including characters who join your party for a while. And I was okay not knowing anything about Trails in the Sky, but yes, you definitely feel a little bit like you're missing out. Uh, there are text explanations, of course, for who's who and what's going on, but it's not really the same thing as playing through it. So I would still say, though, if you want to get into Trails, um, some people will tell you to, just to start with Trails in the Sky. Sure, I guess you can't go wrong. I started with Trails of Cold Steel 1 for the PlayStation 4, and I kind of went from there, although I did skip 2, and that was a problem. But yes, start with 1. It's not a matter of, oh... If I just, uh, it's not even a matter of, oh, if I start with one, I'm missing out on better graphics, I'm missing out on a better gameplay system. No, it all pretty much looks the same. It all pretty much plays the same across all four games, which is fine. That's the way it's supposed to be. So, yes, just start with one and see where you like it from there. RPG site was pretty harsh on it. Oh, RPG, well, RPG site, the guy who, I can't remember who wrote that review, he does not like Trails of Cold Steel at all. He admitted he doesn't like the series. Trails of Cold Steel was a mistake. Yeah, that's what he... See what I mean? Like, But he wants Trails... He likes Trails in the Sky or Trails or something else. But he else. gave Trails of Cold Steel 3 a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but he said he hates it. So I, I, I... Trails of Cold Steel is Trails of Cold Steel. That's all there is to it. It is what it is on the package. Anime school kids trying to save the world. I really like Reen Schwarzer. I think he's a really cool protagonist who learns a lot as he as he grows throughout the games and comes to kind of a sad conclusion at the end of three. But yeah, it's a it's a good series. I'm not sitting here saying, "Oh, Trails of Cold Steel, A plus plus plus, got to play it." It's up there with Final Fantasy. It, to me, it's not, but it's a really great uh, sort of just anime game that follows like surprisingly deep politics. It has really cool trains. I'm good. Upon reflection, almost none of Cold Steel 4's problems are new. They've been with the series since as far back as Ao no Kiseki, but they've only become more obvious, louder and more egregious, and have worsened as the series has gone on. Perhaps the largest issue stems from cast size. Trails in the Sky and Crossbell's main parties were smaller, more personal teams. Falcom's penchant to have every party member or on-screen cast member contribute to almost every scene was almost, wasn't as much of an issue back then simply because the total cast of characters was smaller. Even when everyone could get into the screen at once, at the most, it felt that these parties might catch, match the base size of Cold Steel's Class 7. So do you think that the cast is too large in Cold Steel 4? I think the cast is too large in Cold Steel 1. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Cold Steel in general. Here's the thing, though. I, I feel like it's safe to not pay attention to the characters you don't care about. And to me, who I really care about is the original Class 7. I really like how they grow up for, throughout the games. I think Elliot is just the most adorable RPG character ever. And I kind of care about new Class 7, except for Ash. And I hate Musée. 
Um, but I, I do like the other characters. I do like Yuna, who kind of has to deal with the fact that her homeland has been occupied and now she has to learn within this empire and watch. There's actually a really kind of touching scene in Trail of Cold Steel 3 where she's visiting uh, her old hometown after it's been occupied and she sees a kid holding on to a doll of Mishy, who's like a little cat, a little cat character that's a mascot for the series and actually for Falcom in general. And she realizes that they are now selling this beloved mascot of hers. They're now selling variants that kind of wear the emperor, the empire's uniform. And she's just like, they've taken my, my childhood character and turned him into propaganda. And that just kind of hits her really hard. And that's just kind of the little things, little touches that make cold steel special to me because I could see, I could see someone coming back to an occupied hometown and realizing just seeing things like kids holding blatant propaganda and playing with it as like toys. Yeah, we see it even now. Exactly. It's it's very, very reflective of what goes on in this world. We also, they also mention pacing issues, which frankly has been a thing since the original Cold Steel. I was, I believe I called it the slowest of burns at one time. It can be a very slow burn. It's it's not so bad that it really throws me off. I just kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they kind of sit there and, and do a lot of exposition. Any genuinely good story and character moments are few and far between. Where they do happen, they rely almost entirely on nostalgia. Callbacks to previous arcs, following through on story threads potentially over a decade long, and more. This is probably the main reason why I feel the need to state that you shouldn't play Cold Steel 4 without experiencing the rest of the story first, but I'll also fully acknowledge that it feels like a band-aid solution for a problem inherent with Cold Steel's 4 narrative as a whole. On paper, the idea of working to prevent Erebonia's ancient curse from causing a world war is solid enough. The framing of it all shows that the writing team, quite frankly, had no idea what they were doing. (laughs) Hard stuff. That's a little harsh. Um, And I do have to say, I think that is the harshest review that the game has gotten. Whereas I think on Metacritic last I checked, it was like 82. So average cold steel stuff. RP Gamer gave it a 100. There, I don't know if it deserves a 100, but there you go. <laughs> For those who stuck with Class 7 through Thick and Thin over the three games, The Legend of Heroes, Trails of Cold Steel 4 is a crowning achievement and exceptionally written, well-written story. Screen Rant gave it an 80 and says uh, it's a finale that fans can't miss. And the way the games weave together narrative threads from the last 15 years is truly impressive. Not a lot of big sites actually reviewing it at the moment. It's a lot of uh, kind of smaller sites like digitally downloaded and something called Hey Poor Player. Yeah, I think Europe got all the codes. Like Europe got a ton of codes. Everyone got a code in Europe and North America just did not get any codes. You don't see like Polygon or IGN or anyone reviewing it. We sure didn't get anything. The Escapist did it. Um, Our sister site, Push Square, which is based in the UK, it's affiliated with Nintendo Life, said, gave it a four out of of five or eight out of ten or whatever. On its own, Trails of Cold Steel is far from being the best game in the series, but as a conclusion to an epic story with characters that have long since won us over, it's a fitting finale. One of the most endearing groups in gaming, and although they demand so much of your time across four whole games, both the journey and the eventual payoff have been worth it. When packaged together with Cold Steel 1, 2, and 3, this is easily one of the most engrossing RPG sagas of our time. So, some high praise from people who really enjoyed this series. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to describe it as a saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said in my write-up, this is not the kind of... If you pick up this game with Trails of Cold Steel 4, you're basically picking up uh, Return of the King before you pick up the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, if you get your kicks by doing that sort of thing, be my guest, but <laughs> I don't recommend it. 
Well, Fellowship of the Ring was the best, uh, the best of the bunch because it felt like a more contained story, whereas it got to be, I don't know, Return of the King was so big and messy. Like big finales to giant sagas are so hard to do get right. Exactly, and I think that goes for not just Trails of Cold Steel and Tolkien, but everything. Okay, those are our initial Trails of Cold Steel four thoughts. It's time to move on and talk about the PlayStation 4 for our console RPG quest. Don't go away. Okay, it's time to continue on with our RPG console quest. The quest to review every single console in gaming history and its RPG legacy from the Atari to the Nintendo Switch. And as I already mentioned before, we have skipped ahead in the timeline. We went from the Xbox 360 to the Xbox One and we're doing the PlayStation 4 now because it's the end of the generation. It's time to talk about the modern consoles because next week we have new consoles coming out. Well, in a couple weeks anyway. I am not ready. I am ready because I have one already sitting in my closet at this very moment. I don't. I'm very jealous. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you'll have one soon enough. Eventually. I don't know that it's worth having one right now. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Um, I'm getting excited for the PlayStation 5 when Final Fantasy 16 comes out and or something comes out of the midst to really wow me but for now it's just like well if i had my playstation 5 i would just play my playstation 4 games on it except i can't because apparently backwards compatibility is eh. you can play tales of trails of vesperia and it will load really quickly sure why not <laughs> <laughs> all right let's talk about the playstation 4 usually at this point we start out with our initial memories but i mean the playstation 4 generation is still kind of technically happening so I guess my question is, when you look back on this generation, how do you feel about it? Has it been a good generation for RPGs? Bad generation? Like, mixed feelings overall? What do you think? I think, well, first of all, I remember I bought my PlayStation 4 a little bit late. I think I bought it on sale. And I bought it with, uh, when I did finally get it, I got like an NHL bundle, sort of. That I guess they were only selling it in Canada, unless you guys have NHL bundles in the States. I don't know if oh, you do or not. No. <laughs> you don't even have NHL this year, practically, like the game. Sure so we do. It's a game that it's I've played. It's a game. Yeah, so I had an NHL bundle that I got for pretty cheap, and that's how I got my PlayStation 4. And I'm glad I did. I feel like this was really kind of a redeeming generation for RPGs, especially JRPGs. Last year, they were, uh, sorry, last generation, they were seen as kind of chronically uncool and slow and archaic. And they really wound up back in a good spotlight in the PlayStation 4 generation, thanks a lot to really cool-looking RPGs like Persona 5, for example, I think really made people realize, wow, RPGs can be really cool and fun, even though they are, by all rights, still turn-based. So I think this was a good year, uh, sorry, a good generation, and I think it also helps that Japan seemed to really get a handle on how to develop for HD and 
the PlayStation 4 made development so much easier for them. Uh, the hardware for the PlayStation 4 was considerably easier to develop for than the PlayStation 3, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think it's been the generation of radical choice where all of the old genres that you thought were dead returned in full bloom. We forget yes. that once upon a time, adventure games, kind of not a thing anymore. Space combat sims, not really a thing. Isometric RPGs, very dead. Simulators, kind of out of fashion. Turn-based isometric RPG or strategy games like XCOM, dead. And they all came back in a big way over the past, like, eight years or so. Yes, definitely. Like, what did we play last generation? I guess everything was practically a cover shooter. Shooter. <laughs> we played shooters. It was bad. It was a dark time for the Empire. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> admittedly, we got Walking Dead in 2011, and we had a lot of interesting indie games. And we, you know, we, we went through the 360. We were talking about things like... Mass Effect and of course Bioshock. There were plenty of great RPGs, including ones from Japan on the 360. So it wasn't like we were wanting for choice. For God's sake, Lost Odyssey came out in 2010. So you know, and it was similarly ignored. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the problem. I think even though we did have these really cool JRPGs back in the last generation, they were kind of seen as you look at this thing from Japan that's old and archaic. Whereas now people realize, okay, well JRPGs are are huge. First of all, thanks to uh, the Witcher 3, and uh, people just kind of accept them for what they are now, which is nice. Not a lot of talk about, because we were kind of talking about how this generation got started with the Xbox One, but suffice it to say, the PS4 was coming off a very rough generation with the PlayStation 3. It was ultimately able to catch up and outsell the Xbox 360, but for a long time, the PS3 was considered a disappointment, and it's always been kind of the black sheep of the console playstation family i mean we will talk about that when we get to our ps3 console rpg quest and why that all happened but it one sticking point was definitely the cell architecture which admittedly was very powerful but very difficult to develop for and so even though the ps3 was more powerful on paper games often ran worse <laughs> on the ps3 than they did on the skyrim. 360 skyrim was a legendary for how bad it ran sony learned its lessons from this experience when it set out to build the PS4, it set out to build a console that put games first. It wasn't as much of a media machine like the Blu-ray with the PS3, which was in a lot of ways the Trojan horse to try and push Blu-ray on all, all of us in 2013. Physical media was kind of dying, and Sony recognized this fact. And so they went out, and they just made a really good gaming machine. And that's why it beat the living... <laughs> it beat the brakes off the Xbox One, selling more than double... Ultimately, it is on track to be the best-selling console of all time if things hold to the PS2 is still quite up there. Um, one major change is that it went with an x86-based chip rather than the custom cell architecture of the past, which means that it was more like a PC, which made it a lot easier to develop for. It didn't have the Windows architecture that the Xbox One did, so as a result, games like Path of Exile tended to go to it first but otherwise, the PS4 it had a good GPU, too, and it was just, by and large, more powerful. Games ran better on the PS4 than the Xbox One, and that would retain, remain the case until the PS4 Pro and the Xbox Series X, or Xbox One X. I can never remember the name, the name names. <laughs> too many Xs. Uh, <laughs> even, even now, 
uh, even though the Xbox One X has advantages in many areas, I don't think they're big enough over the PS4 Pro to really matter. Games look amazing on the PS4 Pro, so. Yeah, I don't have a PS4 Pro myself, but uh, it, it just seems the PS4 in general had a much smoother launch than the Xbox One. As you said last week, we talked about the many disasters Xbox One encountered when it launched. Uh, it, it just seemed like, a from the start, a cooler, more powerful system Something about that blue light still makes me happy. When you look back at the beginning of the PS4 generation, it actually wasn't that exciting. Uh, the PS4 launch had games like Killzone Shadowfall, which Ooh. was beautiful, but not a great game. Felt very yeah. last gen in a lot of ways. It leaned heavily on third-party releases. Uh, I was playing a lot of Battlefield 4 and Madden 25 and FIFA and... <laughs> Oh, Assassin's (laughs) Creed, Black Flag. Like, those were some of the big releases at the beginning of the generation. And admittedly, they were a big step up from the 360 in terms of size, what they were able to accomplish. They were kind of the the defining statement for this generation to start. It was like, this generation will be big. It will be huge. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it is. It is a very big generation full of very big worlds um as we were talking about earlier with the whole crunch problem yes that that is one of the big problems you make the bigger worlds with the very fancy 4k assets and you're gonna have to work your ass off to actually make all of that stuff yeah that is games definitely take longer to come out now that's that's for sure but uh yeah the ps4 from the start i wanted one and that doesn't happen with me and all consoles. Like, even now with the PS5 and the Xbox, whatever it is, I'm just like, eh, I'll see where this is going. The only reason I didn't get an Xbox, sorry, the only reason I didn't get a PlayStation 4 from the very start is money. I was kind of eh on the PS4 when it first came out because I was pretty happy with my 360 and I didn't perceive a huge leap. I mean, there was a leap. Don't get me wrong. I got a PS4 at launch. Uh, I enjoyed games like Battlefield 4 on it. but. It wasn't the the leap from, say, the Xbox to the PS2, or sorry, the <laughs> PlayStation to the PlayStation 2, or even the uh, Xbox to the to the 360, right? Because it didn't yeah. have HD. It was just like, well, instead of 720p, you're going to have 1080p, and you're going to have bigger worlds, and great. And admittedly, at that point, the previous generation seemed really long in the two, so we were badly in need of new consoles. But I don't know. The PS4... It looked better for sure, but at the time I was like, yeah, it was a new console. Cool. Yeah, I think our days of giant leaps in visuals are over. And I think what emphasizes that is how to, and during the meeting we had today, and we're talking about graphics and the new systems, and Mike is just going on about ray tracing and how the puddles look and whatever he was playing looks nice. And I'm just thinking, gosh, going from like, the NES, the SNES, what a jump that was. And then the SNES, the PlayStation, what a jump that was. And now it's like, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying like, well, maybe I don't get as excited about new consoles now because there's just, you can't really be like, wow, look how incredible this looks over the PlayStation 4. Because yes, you're right. You can definitely see the differences and you think, oh, that's really nice. I like that. But it's not the, the mind-blowing experience it once was. And I guess we're just old. Everything loads faster now. Don't that you love those la- fast load times, Nadia? I have to admit, that is probably the biggest thing we have going on for this generation. And I am so glad for it because, <laughs> yes, load times, I'm sick of load times. <laughs> 
All things considered, though, the PS4, if you look at games that are end-of-generation PS4 versus end-of-generation PS3, it's not even close. The The leap in visual fidelity is actually really incredible. Like, just compare Last of Us 2 to the original Last of Us. That's true. That's true. We will get to a point where um, we look at the this generation coming up and we look back and say, wow, how did we ever tolerate that? But going into it, it's kind of like the whole frog in a boiling pot metaphor where you don't really notice it at first, but then as you get deeper into it and things warm up, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually quite different. This is cool. Oh, I'm boiling to death. I remember Battlefield 4 being like a, oh, yeah, this definitely looks a lot better. I think the first game to really blow me away with its actual graphics, I think Dragon Age Inquisition definitely did it, and Witcher 3. So a couple of RPGs really stood out to me at the time. It's like, wow, like, these games look great, especially Dragon Age Inquisition. That game looked amazing at the time. Good old RPGs, always showing us the way. There was a game that came out at launch on the PS4, Nadia, that was very overlooked, but ended up being pretty important and really spoke to the future of games this generation. You know what that game was? Okay, sorry, Blank. I was going to say that game that, that Cerny made that everyone jokes about. Uh. <laughs> Were you going to say Knack? Or what was it? Is it N- called Knack? No, Knack. Yeah, Knack. Knack 3 or whatever. Knack 2, I think it was. The game that became a meme? Yeah. <laughs> anytime, you go, anytime you watch any sort of presentation on a game that's coming out and you sit in the chat like an idiot and you just see everyone yelling Knack 3, Knack 3, Knack 3. It's just because it's a meme. I know. <laughs> That's a stupid me. The game that I'm talking about is, of course, Warframe, which, interesting game, Nadia. So, you you can argue whether or not it's an RPG. I don't really think so, per se. I mean, there's a huge number of RPG elements, but it really encapsulates where this generation got started. Because in 2013, the idea of a free-to-play game on console was kind of a weird and novel idea. Mm, right controversial to say the least yeah people are like whoa free-to-play game that's odd but digital extremes the studio that went through very painful layoffs and was basically a work for hire studio they had made star trek which i wrote the cover story for for game pro and it ended up being oh. <laughs> it ended up being a total disaster to the point that it almost killed the studio but digital extremes <laughs> have been holding on to this notion of doing a sci-fi free-to-play open world type game not really open world but mmo mm-hmm. type game for a long time and everybody told them that it was going to be a total flop what are you doing sci-fi who are you kidding me and they went and made a cool game about robot ninjas that was free to play and with the not many games being available on the ps4 plenty of people played it had very good concurrence and it was very rough to start but digital extremes kept iterating and iterating and iterating and they released update after update after update and at a certain point it just became a really 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 good game and that's just, that's games in a nutshell, this generation, like every single freaking game is a, meant to be a service game. It's meant to have a long lifespan and Warframe was the beginning of it. We just didn't really realize it. Yeah, that's a good point. These days, games uh, are meant to have very long lifespans, which makes sense because we just talked about how much goes into developing them these days. Uh, another fantastic example, although it's not free to play, of course, is No Man's Sky which started off as kind of a disaster, but Hello Games reiterated, 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 and now it's uh, quite a fantastic game, I hear. I have not played it in a very, very long time. I do wonder how they make money on it if it's not free-to-play, but uh, they're they're still hanging in there, and they're making major I mean, updates to it. People were buying it. Like, you actually 
buy the game and it has enough hype and you know you get to it's minecraft in space right <laughs> you know you True. get your own spaceship you, you get to uh explore randomly generated worlds you get to build your own base and have your own thing they keep releasing cool content it's neat i like it yeah well good for them for hanging in there and just as you said, rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. And I think that's a very important thing this generation. It's probably going to be a very important thing next generation. Uh, I'm assuming Warframe is still hugely popular. Oh, yeah. Warframe is very popular still. And it will continue yeah. to be popular. I think it's already being released on PS5. Yeah, it, it's definitely going to be one of those games that you're going to see like as early as possible on the PS5. Um, yep. It's officially coming to Xbox Series X and PS5, as was announced back in March. So it's just going to yeah. keep going forever. And, you know, have they mentioned anything about Genshin Impact coming to the next generation? Yeah, Genshin Impact uh, kind of bookended this generation, didn't it? It really did. And I'm hoping it actually runs well on PS5, because God knows I could not get it to run my PS4. Doesn't Genshin Impact really sum up this generation? A service game that doesn't have an original bone in its body, that is anime as F, and everybody is playing it because it's free to play <laughs> yeah and they're, they're going to continue to play it i think that's going to be well there's going to be a lot of games like it in the next generation i think because mm -hmm. uh I, they really struck gold with it and you know what that's great i understand why it's fun and hopefully i'll give it a try again when i have a system that can run the stupid thing uh but i cannot really agree with the whole it's better than breath of the wild takes you're, you're gonna have to stow those for me thank you okay doc yeah stop with that <laughs> <laughs> not not just doc though i've seen it around yeah, anybody who says that, I find automatically untrustworthy. <laughs> well, that's an ouch. <laughs> anyway, service games, I think the thing that, the reason that they're inextricably linked to RPGs, even though they're not strictly speaking RPGs as we would know them, like we don't really talk about Destiny on this podcast because it's a shooter first, right? It's, yeah. That is what it is all about. It's what draws people to it is the shooting aspects. It's just they've done a really good job of layering in elements that have traditionally been associated with MMORPGs and even like roguelikes going back way back in the day. And the big part of it is loot. Developers discovered mm. this generation that loot is a thing people want. It triggers the dopamine in the brain to get the, the purple-colored gun that has all the fancy additions to it. And people will go out of their way to try and get the better gun than anybody else has. And they can keep releasing more and fancier guns as new content. And that is how we get on a giant treadmill forever. <laughs> people love drops. They very much love those drops, especially, I mean, even I love them. I think it maybe goes back to our hunting instincts where we, we kill something, we get something for it. Like, yes, not meat, like a, a fancy gun instead. Yeah, Borderlands was kind of the game to right. really cotton onto it. We're like, hey, people really like this Diablo game. I wonder oh. what that is all about. Can we turn that into a shooter? And then off we went, right? We sure did. And yes, Diablo really makes me happy with all the collecting. On the one hand, I play service games. I'm currently addicted to FIFA again. I can't get again. away from it. <laughs> and you did play a lot of Fire Emblem Heroes. I sure did. Like, I think we all have that one service game we keep going back to that keeps getting updated. But also, the fact that everything is trying to be a service game is really obnoxious at this point. At some point, I just want a game to be a complete work. Yeah. And I think, you know what? I think. Besides games that we that will be full service games like Genshin Impact, 
I think we will see AAA studios really kind of reduce their whole microtransactions uh, formula because they get so much so much kickback for it nowadays, um, especially with people like uh, Jim Sterling making videos about you know shady practices and whatnot, and they, those sorts of videos get shared everywhere. Uh, and we all know how EA got just utterly destroyed for Battlefield 2. Like, mm. So I, I feel like we're going to be seeing less in the way of microtransactions for the AAA games. They'll just change. Battle passes are just microtransactions by a different name. Maybe. They basically but, took what would have been microtransactions and turned it into more of a subscription thing. And we're like, no, no, you unlock these. You're not just spending money to get the loot box, you see. You get the battle pass, and then you level up the battle pass, and then you get the content. And so they're getting people to spend money, and they're increasing engagement. It's like a win-win for these yeah. game developers. I'm not saying it's like totally 100% legit, like in terms of like in terms of the whole logistics behind it. But I'm just saying, well, a subscription. Let's say you're paying a set amount every month for that sort of thing. At least it's not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars into Genshin Impact for a certain character, which recently happened to, I was reading a tweet by someone who said they worked at a credit card company and some guy was spending $20,000 on Genshin Impact and his credit card froze and was calling to complain. It's like, well, sir, you spent too much money on waifus. I, oh, God, that, that <laughs> stuff is just predatory. Let me tell you, like we, I ranted about this when Genshin Impact came out, but I, uh, I don't like it. And this, let's be honest, just, just this generation has been all about wringing money out of you. That's just how it's yeah. been. It's like, oh, you, we're going to get you hooked on this game, and we're going to soak you for every cent you got. I would feel a little better about microtransactions and that sort of thing if I knew the, the income was going to the developers, the people in the trenches, but mm -hmm. it's not. It's all going to the people up top, all for the shareholders. Yeah, so microtransactions, one of the uh, darker elements of this generation, I think. Everybody, it feels like every game series got into it in some way. Yeah, and I'm eager to see what happens next generation. While I do think AAA is going to reduce it a bit and maybe go to those subscription-based battle passes, I think we are going to see more games like Warframe and Genshin Impact, which are just full-out, hey, spend your money here. It's okay. Gamble, gamble, gamble. <laughs> gamble, gamble, gamble. Gambler with his neon claws. While service games continued to grow and became, become more impactful, we also saw something taking root in, in 2014, thereabouts is open world RPGs becoming the new hotness. And I think Witcher 3 really defined this. Uh, we're not going to talk about Witcher 3 because God knows we've talked about it enough. But I think that Witcher 3 was a game that when you looked at it, you're like, holy crap, because the world was so detailed. It was so gigantic. Riding around it was such a pleasure. There was this beautiful weather. It was populated by these little animals. The textures were phenomenal. The cities were huge and lively. And so it felt like you were truly in a world compared to the much more open or much more empty mm -hmm. uh, open worlds or much more cordoned off and open worlds that were in the previous generation. This was a generation that really made good on the promise of open worlds, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think uh, Witcher 3 has takes most of the credit for that, to the point that I believe Nintendo did credit Witcher 3 as an inspiration for Breath of the Wild, which is another gorgeous, fantastic open world, which, and this is important, as you said, doesn't feel empty. Uh, Witcher 3 and Breath of the Wild, by extension, feel 
a little lonely, but they're supposed to, but they're, they don't feel empty. They don't feel dead. There's always something going on just out of the corner of your eye. And I feel that's important because one of the first really big pseudo open worlds I explored that I mentioned recently was Dragon Quest VIII. And even though I was really impressed by that open world, there wasn't a lot going on there. I just loved the sense of freedom, but there was an emptiness. And I think this generation really tackled that problem of emptiness by giving us those little animals, those villagers, those travelers on the road. All those things make a big difference. To me, it's self-evident why open world RPGs became the de facto kind of genre of choice for prestige games. Oh, easy. Yeah. One is open world games are easy to sell as a prestigious thing that you're like, you're going to get so much bang for your buck. You put 60 bucks into this thing and holy crap, you're going to have this incredible (laughs) hundreds of hours of content to explore and enjoy. You are not going to put this game away. And plus, it's like a just a technically impressive feat that really sells you on the value of owning a console. So just by virtue of that fact, you're going to get attention from people. The other thing is that RPGs are a natural way to extend the life of a game, tell a really good story, give people a sense of ownership over the particular character, get the little dopamine flowing when you get new uh, gear. Witcher 3 really showed the value of side quests <laughs> and mm-hmm. choices and giving people control over their fate. And as a consequence, everything became an RPG. Horizon Zero Dawn, Assassin's Creed, Final Fantasy XV was an open world, and so on and so forth. Everything wants to ape the success of Witcher 3. And kind honestly, I'm kind of there for it. <clears throat> yeah, I think it really suits RPGs, especially because when you think about playing a D&D session, you think about the fact that your party starts at an inn or whatever, and you can go anywhere and do anything. It's just limited by the DM's imagination. And even though, obviously, even an open world has its limits, uh, just the fact that there's so much to do and so much to just explore and examine as as you, as his character that you, that you put yourself into, it really does give you that lost, wild feeling that you get when you play a really good uh, D&D session with a good DM. It feels like every single massive game that has come out this year has been an RPG a big mm-hmm. open world RPG like 2015 Fallout 4 and Witcher 3. 2014 Dragon Age Inquisition, not strictly speaking an open world game, but it had a strong exploration uh, component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Assassin's Creed Odyssey. We're going to have Cyberpunk this year. Heck, even in 2018 when we got Red Dead Redemption 2, no, it wasn't an RPG, but it was a huge open world game. God, that was a good game. That was two years ago. Oh, man. I was just thinking about Red Dead 2. Another game that had a crunch problem. Oh, yeah. But there you go. Uh, supposedly, they're working on it. So, uh, when you drag things out into the light, sometimes stuff gets done. Speaking of Dragon Age Inquisition, I talked about on Twitter about how I consider it the most underrated major RPG to come out this generation. I Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure you have people who agree with you. Not Eric, though, right? He likes the, he likes the weird one. Dragon Age 2? Yeah. <laughs> I think he said that he liked it. Well, like when I tweeted it. So I think right now it has 126 likes. So well, there you go. So that's how you know you got people's attention. There's people 126 who, people who agree with me. There are 126 people holding up lighters in agreement. <laughs> but I don't think we need to talk about the very bad generation that Bioware ultimately had. We've talked at yeah. length about how Bioware fell 
Larian CD Project Rose. Obsidian returned, which was nice because CD. Yeah, that was that was a nice surprise. Obsidian had a tough beginning of the generation and then finished out strong and got bought by Microsoft, which was nice. That was that was a that was a good ascent for them. I'm glad that they wound up there. But getting back to Dragon Age, uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, on the open world front, even though, like I said, it wasn't a true open world, it was more cordoned off. You would go onto a map and then you would choose different areas. One of the problems that people cited all the time was a very open world problem, which was too many fetch quests, too many gathering (laughs) missions. (laughs) Too many cooks, yeah. Uh, Open world RPGs do tend to rely on the fetch quests. And we have had discussions about basically good side quests versus boring ass fetch quests and how there needs to be at least a balance there going on i think that it's interesting everybody is always comparing witcher 3 to dragon age inquisition i'm going to do it right now just the difference between dragon age inquisition's open world opening area which was gigantic and had tons to do and people get lost in it and never realize that they can move on from it where witcher 3 had white orchard which is considered the gold standard of tutorials tutorialization everybody copies it these days i feel like that is one of the key differences and why witcher 3 ended up being so successful and why dragon age inquisition was forgotten by history despite being named like one of the best games of that year being hailed as an excellent rpg but nobody talks about it anymore so basically you're saying because of the tutorialization it Mm -hmm. makes a big difference right so many people bounced off it because they hated that opening area that was just Full of gathering missions and people would be like i have to do all the gathering missions you don't you can just move mm, on from it to mm-hmm. the point that kotaku put out a psa please god move on from this <laughs> opening area <laughs> you, there is a game it is beyond the fetch quest please go there but i think dragon age inquisition people forget that actually had some really good dlc it had uh the orlesian ball mask ball which was a phenomenal side quest uh, where with a lot of really cool role-playing opportunities and it was a beautiful game and it was Bioware. Bioware managed to square the difference between the original Dragon Age and Dragon Age 2 to create something that I found pretty compelling all in all. So, And I, I, liked, I liked going to the castle and recruiting the quote-unquote Inquisition and uh, having a battle moose. <laughs> that is one thing I love about Dragon Qu- Dragon Age is just everything is a mount, and, and and I'm okay with that. I remember once reading a comic where uh, the the player character brings home a horse for the stable master to take care of, and the stable master is like, "Okay, this is fine," and then gradually she brings over like a moose and a deer, and then like some weird ass monster that's drooling everywhere. You're like, what do I even feed this? <laughs> <laughs> Since we're talking about the PS4, this is ostensibly the PS4 console RPG quest, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that in PS, Sony's big push to do the prestige single-player action games, it borrowed a ton from both open-world design and RPGs. Uh, a lot of people say Horizon Zero Dawn is an RPG. Um, it's a very light RPG, I want to say. Yeah, I think so. But it really clicked with people in a way that Actually, I wasn't expecting. We famously gave Horizon Zero Dawn a very bad review um, oh, over yeah. at US Gamer. We we did not care for it, and to this to this day, I'm kind of like eh, it's kind of overrated. But it it grabbed people because it was gorgeous. 
had the robot dinosaurs. It had just enough in the way of death for the gameplay. Horizon Zero Dawn had a really fantastic imagination. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing you could say about the PS4 is that it had the power to realize that imagination. Uh, even past generations, I don't think you were getting giant dinosaurs with like whatever they had for heads. I can't even remember. It looked like the USS Enterprise it in my memory. It U- had mobile Ubisoft towers. There you go. And yeah, that's pretty cool, I have to admit. <laughs> I understand there wasn't a lot of depth to the game, but at the same time, I feel like it was a real showcase to what the PS4 could Mm. do, like really kind of catch up to the developers' imaginations. I want to say Horizon Zero Dawn was the game that, like the PlayStation 4 was already very successful, but Horizon Zero Dawn, with Guerrilla Games coming in after the disappointment of Killzone and establishing itself, reestablishing itself as a top-tier developer, was pretty impressive. I think, and really solidified that Sony had won this generation and won it big time, right? Like, we already knew that, mm-hmm. but in an even bigger way by that point. Yeah, that was definitely one of the really big, huge, and first exclusives that made a lot of headlines. Uh, Guerrilla Games was able to make a comeback. I will, I will acknowledge that ultimately Horizon Zero Dawn, very popular, and the new game that is coming out on PS5 and also PS4, interestingly, is going to be a big deal. It's going to be one of the absolute biggest games when it is ultimately released. Yeah, that's going to be... Uh, I don't think there's a release date yet, but it will be one of the games that really pushes the PS5 into... I need to have this territory for a lot of people because it's an exclusive. I will say that I was wrong in the sense that I did not expect it to be as big as it was. I figured that people would forget about it by the end of the year, but instead people are putting it in like best of the generation type lists. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely left an impression. Yep. Yep. People went against me. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. Another group that came back in a big way, more collective, and you were talking about this at the beginning, is Japan. Japan came back in a big way. Yes. And that was that was a big deal for me because I you know, as much as I did enjoy the likes of like Bioshock and and Western RPGs on the three sixty, my heart's always with the with the JRPGs and the weird anime stuff. Yeah, and we got some good ones this generation. We got Persona 5, we got Nier Automata, we got Monster Hunter World, Final Fantasy VII Remake, Dragon Quest XI. I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest moments of this generation, 2015 E3, which was when Sony released, revealed its the trio. The trio that officially... Sol- okay, like I said that Horizon Zero Dawn really solidified that it won the generation. That was also... The big moment, right? Where yeah. Sony basically buried Xbox. And it was all Japan. Because they were like, we got Shinmu, we got Final Fantasy VII Remake, and we've got Last Guardian. And they're all Last coming Guardian, out. That's right. All of these Vaporware games that people have been wanting for so long. Sony's like, we got them. All from Japan. <laughs> and it showed how much uh, passion these particular develop- these particular games could ultimately engender and uh, it, the the amount of excitement it was one of the most one of the craziest and most intense e3s i've ever seen that was a really fun e3 i always love the ones that are just really intense and fun like that but yes just the fact that sony revived these games that as you say were kind of vaporware forgotten in the last generation or just never mentioned at all that to me kind of said well okay we care about japan Japan is now, it is now important to us again, so let's all get these games out there eventually and have fun. I've One thing that I've noticed is that usually the second year of a generation uh, is kind of the watershed year for it. If you look mm-hmm. at 
if you look back at the pre the generation before that, 2007 was an absolutely outrageous year in terms of games yes. release. Modern Warfare, Mass Effect, Bioshock, you name it. I think 2015 was that year for the PS4. I mean, just the fact that MGS 5 came out that year, Fallout 4 came out that year, Witcher 3 came out that year, Undertale came out that year. It was an incredible year. Undertale, yeah, Undertale. You think about you're mentioning all these great AAA games and this little indie game comes out of nowhere and blows everything out of the water. What a time. What a time to be alive, right? What a time to be alive, Moon Pies. Undertale, one of the best RPGs of the generation, I would say. Oh, absolutely. If not the best, one of the most influential by far, mm-hmm. to the point that, God, now we have Sans in Smash, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and Toby Fox is making Pokemon music. You know, I, I absolutely cannot wait for Deltarune to, to be finished and come out. Bloodborne came out that year? There you go. Oh, right. that's right. What a year. Yeah. It was a, yeah, it was a very big one. That was, might have been even the year that I finally broke down and got my PS5, because it really proved itself. And finally, there were games that I said, I cannot ignore this game. I need this game right now. Bloodborne was another example of Japanese developers kind of leading the way, I would say. You've been telling me, because I played Dark Souls, and I kind of liked it, but you've been telling me Bloodborne is probably a better one to go for. I'd say Bloodborne is the, if I were to recommend one, it would probably be Bloodborne, uh, just to play, because it's the most fun. Yeah, I have it. I really need to, maybe I'll do that over the Christmas break. Why did Japan manage to make a comeback? I would argue it's mostly because the PS4 was relatively easy to develop for in a lot of ways. I, we'll get into this in the previous generation, but the 360 PS3 era was a very disruptive and weird time for video games. And it was. It was hard on everybody. It wasn't just Japan. And in Japan, no. mobile games really took over in a big way. And for a time, it seemed like Japanese development was just all going to mobile games. And then it petered out a little bit, I would say. And Japanese developers started coming home a bit. And we started to see that with the PS4. Um, Dark Souls was kind of the the front runner of that in 2011. And then in this mm-hmm. this generation, uh, it just got better and better and better. Uh, Cap- Konami <laughs> kind of fell off, sadly. R.I.P. Konami. I mean, they still exist, but their game development went away. Um, yeah. Capcom had a really good generation, really good second half of the generation. Yeah, Capcom for a while, it looked like it was going the way of Konami in that it just kind of stopped caring. And then suddenly it started caring again. And we got we got Monster Hunter World, of course, which is absolutely fantastic. We got uh, Street Fighter V, which started with problems, but has built up over the time. Mega Man 11, no one thought Mega Man was coming back. So uh, Capcom has kind of gone back to embracing its roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like it's on track for a really great next generation. We have more Monster Hunter games coming out for the Switch, and they look like they were a lot of fun. Uh, I'm interested to see where Capcom goes, and uh, frankly, I'd like to see Mega Man X9 before I die, please. <laughs> hey, please? we got Mega Le- Man 11. Yeah, that's great, but I want Mega Man X9. It's worth pointing out, this has a, been a very long generation. It doesn't feel it that has. way. Maybe because I'm getting older, I don't know. But the past seven years really did seem to fly by, but seven years is a long time. Yeah, and I think what happened with the mobile gaming and Japan is that you're absolutely right, there was that shift over to mobile gaming. But if you remember, the early days of mobile gaming, you could actually still get people to pay for your games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually got to the point where people, did not, people do not want to pay for mobile games, with the maybe the exception of Minecraft, because that's still hugely popular on mobile. 
Five Nights at Freddy's for some reason. It's hugely popular on mobile. You'll get people who will pay maybe, maybe like $2 at most for your game. So you had a lot of indie developers at the time who were like, okay, all the games, all the money's to be made on mobile now. And I imagine a lot of Japanese developers were the same way because I'm sure mobile was also a lot easier to develop for than the PS3. But then it got to the point where there were only a few games went free to play and only a few were really making crazy money. So you had a lot of deve- a lot of developers in Japan releasing these games free to play. They just weren't making any money. I know because I played a lot of them and they were shut down. And yeah, like a lot Terra of battle. Oh, Terra battle. R.I.P. I mean, and then you just had a lot of problems with mobile development with the uh, with every time iOS uh, updated, uh, games would break. Infamously, iOS 8 destroyed so many games in the App Store, uh, particularly Capcom's catalog. And I think maybe that's why they decided, you know what, screw this. We're we're going back to console now because that is around the time they started to get more serious about consoles. Uh, Another thing that might have finally brought Japan home to consoles, I'm not a huge tech person, but I do understand Japan was a little hesitant to embrace engines like Unity. Mm-hmm. for quite a long time they would make their own engines for each game and that's a very intensive time intensive money intensive process so japan by the sounds of it finally said okay well we're we're learning unity now we're learning all these engines we're learning havoc i don't know if havoc still used i guess it is so that might have made things easier for them on top of the fact that the ps4 is much easier to develop for and not to mention they have that experience now developing HG, because making that mm. jump into HG was, as you said, very difficult for all developers. So I think just a combination of things brought Japan back to console gaming, and I'm glad that happened. Though the reason I mentioned that it was a very long generation was because I think it's been kind of a tale of two generations. If you think about it, the first half of the generation was not actually that strong for Japanese games. And mm-hmm. it was more reflective of the kind of the 360 PS3 era. But then when the PS4 Pro and then the Xbox Series X or Xbox One X came out, <laughs> um, God. that was kind of the next part of the current generation, part two. And yeah, I think about 2017 when the Switch came out and Nier Automata came out. And mm, all of a sudden, it, it just felt like Japanese games just roared to the top in a lot of ways. Monster Hunter World was hugely successful in 2018. We got FF7 remake this year, and consoles took another st- took a half step forward toward where we were. Games got more powerful, and also it helped that around this time the anime generation came of age, and so stuff yes. like Genshin Impact just landed way harder than it would have ten years ago. I think also maybe Japan was kind of like gladdened by the fact that so many of their games that were distinctly Japanese were getting huge audiences in the West. Like Persona 5, that was, you know, a, that really took off in the West. Uh, Monster uh, Hunter World, of course. got a lot of hype. I don't know if it took off, quote unquote. Like, actually, its sales weren't that strong. It was strong. They were strong enough. But I think it's just the the sound and the fury was more than the actual results. Now, I thought I read somewhere that it actually sold really well in the West, but Persona uh, Five Royal, I think, beat expectations. Uh, doesn't Persona Five kind of define Japanese games this generation? Near that and Near Automata, which came out uh, the same year. That's right. That the same. I remember it went up for the same. It went up for the best music at the game, uh, the Game Awards, and it near won over Persona Five. If you just want to compare and contrast Near Automata to Near, 
and the way that everybody just kind of raised their eyebrow at Nier in 2010 and were like, what, what the heck is this crap? What is going <laughs> Good on? Old Yoko Taro. <laughs> everybody just made fun of it the whole time because it was kind of ugly and weird and everybody was talking about how strange it was. And then when Nier Automata came out, Everybody embraced the weirdness. Weirdness was a selling point. They loved it. That's the thing. Everyone embraces weirdness now. They don't really reject it the way they did last generation. It wasn't that it was that much better looking by open world RPG standards. It was actually fairly plain. It's just that people were way more willing to engage with it on its own terms. So we've been talking about the PlayStation 4 for a little bit, but it's worth highlighting some other trends that happened this generation. Uh, we've already talked about the microtransaction deluge. A couple of other things worth pointing out. VR became a thing this generation. Mm, for now. Not a huge not a huge impact on actual RPGs, I would say. Not a huge impact, period. I hear I thought I read just recently that PlayStation's just kind of shrugging about VR now and of course the whole mess with Oculus being linked to Facebook. That's not gonna help the platform any in any way. Look, I am not the world's biggest VR booster, but to say that VR has not had an impact is not true. I mean, just look at just look at the phenomenon of VTubers. Look at Right. Right. I think that if you buy a top end setup, having a VR headset is one of those fancy things. You're like, whoa, you got a VR headset, right? And like truly immersive, amazing VR experiences are really prized. And we've had some good ones like Astro's Playroom and Tetris Effect and uh, Half-Life Alex, which was like one of the first, which was a true VR killer app. And heck, even Star Wars Squadrons was really, really great in VR, uh, aside from the refresh rate issues, but still. Oh, God, VR just makes me puke. (laughs) Oh, I'm not a huge fan of it. And it's still pretty early days for the technology, but it's grown by leaps and bounds. As for its impact on the RPG genre, I think one of the problems that it's been having is that RPGs by their nature are these the kind of games that you sit for a long period of time and mm-hmm. that is having a VR headset on is not conducive to that. No, I just thinking about it makes my neck hurt. Although, you know what? I did play Labo VR uh Zelda Breath of the Wild. And that was honestly despite the terrible terrible resolution the experience, the immersion was actually really, really good. And I would have loved to play more, but dear God, it made me nauseous. <laughs> uh, I think, remember, they put Skyrim out on VR. Right. Does anyone play that in VR? I just heard about people sure. puking. That's, that's all I remember. <laughs> it was always playing. just a weird kind of tech demo almost. Like, look at right. what we can do. It's like, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah, um, I could see Skyrim if you could handle it. If your stomach could handle it, I could see Skyrim on VR being kind of fun. But I think VR is actually probably the new frontier of games. I think it is the bleeding edge of where the most interesting innovation is happening right now. So many games are very codified. We know what to expect now. You don't see as much wild experimentation, certainly in the big budget space. I mean, Mm -hmm. even indies have settled into kind of this formulaic of, look, we did another roguelike. <laughs> Best game <laughs> yeah. of this year is another roguelike. Whatever. I'll I'll be honest, Hades is looking to gun for my first spot. Oh, Hades is amazing. Don't, don't get me yeah. wrong. There are new frontiers of interactivity that we have not explored with VR. And I hate sounding like one of those annoying VR stands from a couple years ago. I don't think that it's going... I don't think it's ever going to truly become extremely mainstream unless they become very lightweight and very easy Mm -hmm. to use call me in 10 years but 
Exactly. As of right now, it is a phenomenal hobbyist proposition. And I really love how there's so much experimentation going on. Yeah. If it gets cheater uh sorry, if it gets cheaper, lighter, and not is not completely screwed over by Facebook, ten years from now, VR will be a much bigger deal, I think. Another thing that happened this generation, the explosion of streamers and YouTube. One of the reasons oh. that I think Sony was successful out of the gate was that they put the big old share button on their system. They understood it where Xbox did not. God, that you know what? As effective as it is, that hub is so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. It got. To, I mean, heck, I streamed last Monday when we were finishing 5.0 of uh, Final Fantasy 14. We had, had a great time. But looking at it, I'm like, I cannot stream anymore until I fix this hub because a so PlayStation hub is the ugliest thing in the world. But as you said, it got people online. It worked. It's strange to think about, but seven years ago, streaming was still pretty a pretty new concept. I think people weren't. Yes really going on Twitch yet. It was starting to become a thing, but it was not a huge deal. YouTube YouTube was in its, what, second generation by this point? It was less mm-hmm. than 10 years old. And streaming and YouTubers and influencers in particular, it's this generation where influencers start showing up en masse at gaming events, and I'm like, ugh, you. <laughs> <laughs> Streamer, uh, influencers, shilling for stuff. There are good influencers who are pillars of oh, the community absolutely. and work their asses off to put out phenomenal content. And then there are all yeah, rage I, I artists watch more than a few. who exist solely to get anger clicks and stir up the community. You know who you are. This was a generation of Gamergate. Oh, it sure was. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, <laughs> in, in 2014, man, what a mess. It was, it was not a fun time to be in the games press in 2014. Sometimes it's still not, to be honest with you, but... It became embedded in the culture, the Gamergate stuff. It was just, it was burning really hot. It was like a new star exploding. Yeah, I know. I have a few friends who were like, nothing, had, they'd done nothing, nothing had happened, but they got chased out for no reason whatsoever. The number of journalists who got doxxed... Uh, heck, it happened again with E3, <laughs> everyone's yeah. address. I didn't mean to make this console RPG quest so dark, but... I mean, you have to acknowledge the darkness that has emerged in gaming as it has become more and more mainstream. Yeah, it is something, again, another thing to be kind of dragged out into the light and discussed because of not a fun thing to discuss, but you have to. I feel like this is a generation where games truly became mainstream in a way that they had never been before. Yes, I totally agree with that. You know, we say that it happened with PlayStation uh, and Final Fantasy VII, which it did for sure, but that was more, I feel like this is a more... Video games are finally really all ages. Like, everybody plays video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people, and the age of people who are playing it just keeps going up and up, and it's become socially acceptable to do a thing. This is the generation where celebrities like Drake, you know, <laughs> AOC, AOC playing a- yeah, Among go. Us on Twitch is a defining moment in games, in my opinion. I mean... Or Ninja playing with Drake in Fortnite, where exactly. everybody was watching, hundreds of thousands of people, you know? Everybody was yeah. talking about it on social media. Yeah, this is, or like, heck, I remember writing um, a story about how the director of Black Panther, Between Takes, was playing Stardew Valley. Yeah, it feels like even people who aren't playing games are still playing games. Because they're yes. they're playing on your mobile device, right? They're playing a mm-hmm. free to play game on their mobile device, or 
probably there's a console lurking around in their house, like a, a Switch. The, the Switch can't stay in stock. And we were talking about in the last episode, Nadia, how the Xbox One, yeah, it's outsold the Super Nintendo. But think about the context. Think about how many more people mm-hmm. own a console now. Exactly. Like, it, we think of the Xbox One, well, it didn't sell that well, but it still sold more than the SNES. But in context, when you have a society now where everybody's playing games versus the SNES generation, which is still mostly kids' stuff, yeah, that, that counts for a lot. Uh, Jim Ryan, uh, who is, like, one of the leads of Sony these days, was saying that, in his opinion, the PS5 can be even more successful because the age of gamers keeps going up, which means that there's just more and more people who are actually going to be playing games. It's not, we're not, we're, it's becoming less and less of a thing where you're expected to sell your 360 or your console because now you're an adult and that's not a thing that adults do. No, exactly. I feel like if you're an adult playing the PlayStation 4 right now, of course you're going to go to the PlayStation 5. You're not going to say, well, I guess it's time for me to grow up. I mean, you're already like 30 years old. What do you got to lose? <laughs> I know so many 40, 50-year-olds who have a console and they're playing FIFA and Call of Duty, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. They everyone should play should RPGs, play games. though. The plug I, I agree. Everyone, you know, Everyone play RPGs. Forget the sports stuff. Play RPGs. The, there has been a side effect of this, and I think it's been a bad side effect, Nadia. Mm-hmm. And that has been the great game flood. Right. There's right. so many games now. There are too many games. Definitely too many games. I'm just, right now in my head, I'm kind of sorting what I have to play and when and why. And, of course, in our industry, we're, we're, our line of work, it's like, we got another game code. Oh, God. <laughs> it's become a lottery <laughs> now where yes. you see, you hear about the winners, like Among Us, just out of nowhere becoming a freaking sensation, right? Because yeah. a couple of streamers, and, and let's be honest, streamers and, and YouTubers are the, the tastemakers now, far more than journalists. Mm-hmm. Journalists are here oh, just to report on the everyday happenings of uh, the industry and the, and the news and that kind of thing. But streamers, they dug up Among Us, and uh, suddenly Among Us became the biggest game of 2020 uh, mm-hmm. out of nowhere. But, although, but there's so many high-quality games that come and go, and... Just never see the light day. Nobody ever talks about them. And it's such a boom and bust proposition for both big game studios and indie developers. And it's uh, it's been pretty rough in that regard. It has been. And I think we will talk a little bit about uh, maybe a couple of PlayStation 4 RPGs that were overlooked. Because there were a few. Can you guess how many games came out on Steam in 2014? Two. About 2,000. Uh, okay, I was partway there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how many games came out in 2017 on Steam? How many? About 7,000. Wow. And about 8,000 were released in 2019. So that's just Steam. Mm-hmm. Okay. 8,000 games. As journalists, we can make a lot of hay out of unearthing the games that nobody notices on Steam or Itch or whatever. But it also means that a I get so many questions from indie developers. How can we get your attention? How can we get you to pay attention to your game? Like, uh, we're trying to keep our head above water here. There's not (laughs) that many many of us. Too many games? Really sorry. Like, there's so many indie developers who really deserve a shout out. And you just Mm -hmm. can't give it to everyone. On that note, let's highlight some RPGs that are, in fact, really good and deserve some attention. Here are a few of them. When I asked on Twitter... 
hey, Twitter, what are some overlooked RPGs from this generation? You know what game was mentioned that I hadn't even really thought about, but it kind of surprised me. It came out in that great year of 2017 and thus was probably overlooked. Battle Chasers Night War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that looked like a really interesting game that uh, it was based on a comic series, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And it came out, uh, I remember playing it at Judges Week. I'm thinking this oh. is kind of a cool game. It's it reminds me a little bit of the Steam World RPG. Yes, I was thinking about that when I looked it up myself, uh, which was also a really good little RPG if you like uh, Slay the Spire. It's not quite as hardcore as that, but yeah, it, it did remind me of that. But Battle Chasers, very pretty. Uh, that that was another thing that happened this generation is that the distribution of technology meant that the production values of indie games went way up. So yes. it just became possible to create absolutely gorgeous independently developed games. It also made it tough for indie developers because a certain level of polish became expected of a game. So yes. a game like Hades is, it's an indie game, but really it's also kind of a AAA big budget game in its own way. It, it looks like it could be a AAA big budget game, except for the fact that it really experiments with the art style. Then you don't really get that so much in AAA games. But a good example would be Owlboy, mm-hmm. which was just one of the most beautiful games made this generation. Or Ori. It, Ori, another one. Yeah, so the, the you're right, the bar has been raised substantially, even for smaller studios, to really not just make your game look good, but make it stand out. Because the age of being able to kind of make an indie game in Flash is... a uh, Kind of behind us, especially since Flash is dead, R.I.P. <laughs> Battle Chasers Night War. It's a turn-based RPG with three characters, uh, fairly large party sizes, lots to do, lots to find, very depth, in-depth skill pool, um, kind of a fun battle system in which you store up mana and you can uh, use like very powerful attacks as a result, so there's a little bit of a risk-reward kind of going on. Um, it's like I kind of flew over our heads three years it ago, totally but did. it seems like something that the Blood God is willing to recommend. I would, I would definitely uh, chance a recommendation. It has great reviews on Steam. It's actually on, I think it's on Switch now. It is available on PC, PS4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, and iOS and Android. Oh, really? Yep. It was given an eight out of ten by Destructoid, calling it fun and visually striking, but criticizing a jump in difficulty that led to grinding as the player got deeper into the game. Yes, grinding was something that came up fairly often with and reviews yeah. of this game. Yeah, when I looked up reviews, I did hear that. Yes, it does embrace those old JRPG tropes, and thank God now we're in a time where we actually praise those old RPG tropes instead of saying "ew, what are these?" But excess of grinding, uh, nobody really wants that. Character development's a little bit lacking. Uh, mm. They're, quote, kind of two-dimensional and don't really evolve or grow or face personal adversity. But ultimately, it's a very good systems-based RPG and perhaps well worth your time, especially since it's available on practically everything. And it's old, so it's going to be cheap. Another game that was worth pointing out, Cosmic Star Heroine, <laughs> a game that yeah. we tried to do it. uh an RPG report for it and ended up uh, dropping halfway through, unfortunately. But man, oh man, that game was pretty and it is available on Nintendo Switch. I enjoyed that game. I feel like even though it has some problems with the battle system, um, it has a fantastic soundtrack, has amazing visuals. Again, they mm-hmm. stand out and they look they look fantastic. Uh, kind of goes for that Turbo Graphics vibe, which you don't see indie developers do too often. 
Um, yeah, my only real problem with it was the battle system being a little slow, but it wasn't, it certainly wasn't like, oh, I hate this game. I can't recommend it. I do recommend it if you can get it, especially on sale. Like, give it a try. Uh, if you have some time, you have the time and the patience, you probably find you enjoy it quite a bit. Its downfall was that every single encounter required me to use the full breadth of the battle system. Yeah, which got that was a problem. The yeah, right definitely. arc, and I think Persona does this really well, is being able to knock out mooks really fast, but having that be a drain on your resources. And then when you get to a boss, digging, being able to dig into a deep bag of tricks to really succeed against them. Yeah, that, that's what feels best with RPGs. Uh, Eric threw out Tales of Berseria. And I said, why, Eric? Tales? <laughs> Eric is our resident Tales fan. Yeah, he's, he's a Tales guy. He said, quote, combat felt a lot better. General world building was much better. Major departure for the series. Berseria had the first female protagonist who was literally out to murder someone. That's okay. I'm going to let the city burn because I want to murder that dude who killed my little brother. Best protagonist since Yuri. I'm guessing Yuri's from another game. Uh, Tales of Vesperia. Right. And I'm, I'm, I've been told that's the one I should play by Eric. It's out on everything. So <laughs> Exactly. A lot I'll of people say Vesperia is one of the, probably the best game in the series. That or Symphonia. Symphonia is one I hear a lot of standing for. Was that on the GameCube? I think it... Uh, I it think was on the GameCube, yes. Yeah. We talked about it in our GameCube console did, RPG yeah. quest. Go and that got remastered some, uh, some time ago and uh, for its 10th anniversary, and hopefully it'll be remastered again. I feel like Tales is a lot like Cold Steel in that it's, it's this kind of self-contained fandom that is a little little intimidating to crack into, but when you get there, it's, it's quite fun. We didn't even talk about, the segment's getting long, but we didn't even talk about all the games, all the RPGs that got remastered this generation. Oh, and all of them? And as a consequence, just won't freaking <laughs> die like Skyrim. Skyrim, uh, Skyrim's going to be on everything. Like, Skyrim's going to be on, there were memes going around, like, uh, uh, like Todd Thank God Howard. I grew up with this and not this, and it's yeah. just Skyrim both times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Todd uh, Howard looking at the PlayStation 5, like, like you know, w- waiting for Skyrim, holding it in his hands. Just, uh... <laughs> It's going to come out for, for PlayStation 5 real soon. But, if there uh, was an RPG, it probably got remastered, except Mass Effect for some reason. Yeah, maybe for the Switch. Rumors, rumors, At some point, rumors. maybe. I don't know. But I feel like it has to happen. We didn't even knows? talk about what disaster Mass Effect Andromeda was, but that goes into the whole Bioware was... <laughs> oh, God, no. Had a rough time. Or Mass was, Effect Andromeda. That was a great example of social media kind of destroying a game. I mean, deservedly so, because those... Just those gifts were so bad. But didn't help that it was out in 2017, right on top of Horizon Zero Dawn and Nier Automata and Breath of the Wild, which is one of the great one, two, three punches of all time, I think. Yeah, it did not have a chance. Not It looked so shoddy, unfortunately. And finally, Nadia, I'm throwing you a bone here. Dragon Quest Builder is kind of an overlooked RPG, if you want to call it an RPG. Yes, everyone should play Dragon Quest Builders, and especially Dragon Quest Builders 2. They're both genius games, especially 2. So much fun if you love Minecraft and, and questing and dragons and RPGs. I, I still go back to it sometimes and like fool around with my castles and stuff. It, it kind of runs badly on the Switch, but it's still okay on there. Fantastic on the PlayStation 4. Do play it. It's a great little game. So what's the legacy of the PS4 for RPGs, Nadia? This is what I wrote. Basically, the PS4 generation was when RPGs completed their transformation into a mainstream genre. I mean, yeah, FF7 was hugely (laughs) popular back in the day. Fallout 3 was a big deal on the 360. But the genre always felt like a nerdy companion. 
to shooters and other mainstream genres. Nowadays, RPGs feel like the single biggest prestige genre out there. Everything wants to be an RPG. When a big open world RPG comes out from a big developer with good name recognition, it's a huge freaking deal. We saw that with Cyberpunk 2077. We saw that with Witcher 3. We saw it with Fallout 4. We're seeing it with Genshin Impact, for heaven's sake, a game that is doing outrageously well. Everything wants to be an RPG. Assassin's Creed wants to be an RPG. Sony's prestige sad dad simulators want to be an <laughs> RPG. Destiny wants to be an RPG. Bloodborne, want, I guess it's kind of an RPG, but you get what I mean. All of these RPG elements have filtered into other games because developers have realized that RPGs are great and that they should borrow as much as they possibly can. As a result, the genre has become a little bit watered down. But when you see a true RPG like Persona 5 or, well, frankly, Cyberpunk, you know it, you understand it, you see what is great about it. I would say that RPGs, in a lot of ways, have never been better. Yeah, it's definitely a high point for RPGs. And I know nothing can last forever, but I really do hope that the PlayStation 5 continues this trend of people realizing that the PlayStation 4, like, it kind of healed the genre because as we discussed, that's when Japan kind of got a better handle on developing JRPGs. Uh, and I think more developers implement RPG mechanics into their games because they realize uh, it's easier to kind of maintain that game and make it bigger that way through those, through those RPG mechanics and make them more immersive experience. So I feel like JRPG, sorry, I feel like RPG mechanics are going to be with us for the next generation and I'm glad that the PlayStation 4 kind of made them, kind of brought them into the spotlight again and made them cool, made them fun to emulate, made them acceptable to emulate and to play. So PlayStation 4 is definitely one of my favorite consoles ever for that reason. I'm happy I have mine, even though it sounds like a jet engine taking off and I think maybe it's not long <laughs> for this world. I don't know. Uh, my, my thinking the PlayStation 5, I'm going to buy it as soon as I possibly can. And I'm hoping that the PlayStation 4's legacy of great JRPGs and RPGs will continue into the PlayStation 5. And I feel like it will, but who can see the future, right? I mentioned earlier that I think one of the reasons that RPGs are so good now is that the concept of radical choice, where you have your massive open world RPGs that are designed to be accessible by nature and are maybe more watered down. But also, you get your really hardcore RPGs like Divinity right. Original Sin and Baldur's Gate 3. Or Dragon Quest uh, Everything 11. in between, from Final Fantasy VII Remake to Near Automata to Outer Worlds, right? Right. I mean, there's so many really good RPGs. And plus, kind of our wish list was fulfilled in a lot of ways. Like, RPGs that we wanted to come back came back. Mm-hmm. We got Final Fantasy VII Remake finally. Holy crap. <laughs> and it was good. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been at like one of our two or three biggest wish list items at the beginning of this generation? Oh, absolutely. And we got it. And we're, we're getting more. And we're getting Final Fantasy XVI. And it's probably going to be great. And we got Dragon Quest XI, which, again, is a really great example of a good hardcore RPG if you don't really want the watered down stuff. there You're right. There is a lot of choice out there. It's not like it's not like RPGs have been watered down to one flavor. There, there's many, many flavors going on. So as this generation comes to an end, games are bigger than ever. They're more toxic than ever. But that, I guess that comes with popularity. And we can look ahead 
to the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, the new generation of consoles, a new generation of games, a new decade for video games. What will happen next? I wonder. I guess we'll discuss it when we uh, review the PS5 and Xbox Series X in the next episode of Acts of Blood God. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. One thing I forgot to do with this segment, by the way, Nadia, is we forgot to say the best RPG of the generation. It's Witcher 3. Duh. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving right along, I suppose. All right. It's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we look back on a song from an RPG that we really enjoy because music does so much to inform the heart and soul of an RPG and the genre that we love so very, very much. And this week is from Trails of Cold Steel 4, which is now available. And it was submitted to us from David, they said, to celebrate the upcoming release of Trails of Cold Steel 4. And as one of the resident Trails stands of the Blood God, I thought it would be a good idea to have a track that exemplifies what Trails is about, in my opinion. The track I present to you is called Blue Destination from Trails of Cold Steel 2. It is a battle track that plays during some story <laughs> fights and some end-of-game mecha battles. What I liked about it is that it had a great combination of a driving beat that keeps you pumped up with a somewhat melancholic melody. I think it represents the serious spirit of having a maiden character fight a close friend who is on the opposite side of a political conspiracy to annex a neighboring nation while waking the spirit veins that surround the continent at the same time. <laughs> the yep. perfect mix of pretty grounded political maneuvers between countries across many games with grade A anime bullshit, Dragon Ball Z style power levels and Gundam fights. The fact that any one specific game in the series deals with pretty local regional threat that is still part of a larger conspiracy that takes several games to unfold. Anyway, that's it. Hope you like it, and thank you for five years of great RPG content. All right, let's have a listen to Blue Destination. Okay, that was Blue Destination, a song that is ostensibly a bit of a leitmotif for Reen and comes up quite a bit. TV Troves points out that at one point it gets a dark reprise for spoilerific reasons. Nadia, what did you think of this song? Yeah, I think basically David laid it all out perfectly, saying it's, it sort of really suits Cold Steel, which is, again, uh, pretty grounded political maneuvers in between countries across many games with grade A anime bullshit. That's exactly what it is. And yes, there is a climactic fight in Trails 2 where Reen has to fight someone he's very close to because blah blah blah, opposite ends of the political spectrum. And yes, this is all taking place in giant robots. <laughs> Cold Steel kind of has everything going on. 
Um, Falcom's sound team, I think, is one of the most underrated in RPGs. Uh, especially the Ease games sound just fantastic. Cold Steel has really, really great music across all four games. And, and this is no exception. Usually with boss themes, you do get that very kind of driving sort of generic theme that you expect with fighting bosses. But given that this particular theme is for a heavy story moment that's pretty sad, yes, it fits the bill pretty perfectly, I'd say. It has that really nice PS2 sound that I really enjoy. Exactly. You know what? That's a good way to describe a lot of Falcom's RPGs. That's that comforting PS2 aesthetic. And I don't mean that in a bad way whatsoever. I really do mean that kind of, if not straightforward, then obvious game that you just kind of instinctively know how to play and just kind of know what to expect. And it's, it's very pleasant in that regard. One thing that I was kind of mentioning, and I think it's one thing I didn't really mention during the RPG quest for the PS2 was... The first part of the generation, a lot of Japanese developers were still making games for the PS3 and the Vita, and Trails of Cold Steel kind of exemplifies that. It took, it still took them a while to transition over to the PS4. It's just that once they did transition over to the PS4, they did so in a big way. Yes, yes. Uh, Trails of Cold Steel, the original, was originally a P uh, PlayStation 3 game, and I think the Vita as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because, I mean, the PS3 took so long to finally become embedded that, uh, you know, a lot of developers were making games for the PSP and then they moved on to the Vita and they were like, okay, yeah, we're, we're making stuff for this and we'll move on to the PS4 eventually. You know, PS4 did not actually do that well in Japan. It only, as of, uh, I think, 2019, it only sold about 6 million units, at which point mm. the Switch actually surpassed it after just two years on the market. So that tells that you quite surprising. who the PS4 was. Yeah, but I guess it's more of a worldwide phenomenon than, than any one place. I wonder how much Dragon Quest XI managed to help it. I'm sure it helped quite a bit. I mean, it's Dragon Quest. It is Dragon Quest, so a lot of people bought it on the DS, I'm sure. That's true, and that's probably why they released it on... They, I think since it was such a tumultuous time for video games, even when they were still developing Dragon Quest XI, they realized, okay, well, let's not take any risks here. Let's put it on the PlayStation 4 and 3DS, which I think the 3DS version did sell extremely well. Mm -hmm. But looking back at Trails of Cold Steel, uh, it was composed by the Falcon sound team, Hayato Sonoda and Takahiro Unisuga, and it was arranged by Yukihiko Jindo and Toshiharu Okajima. RPG Fan has a really good review of the original soundtrack that I encourage you to go read. Um, something that's worth noting, Hayato Sonoda, been around with Falcom for a long time, like 20 years, real veteran. Yeah, I feel like, and I'm, I think I'm right about this, Falcom is just one of those studios that has veterans, is made of veterans, and mm. I think... A lot of loyalty to it. It's president, exactly. it's president with a fan, you know? <laughs> like, exactly. And that's what I was talking about earlier, about how you can't just chew up developers and spit them out. You gotta let them, you know, get seasoned and... and become seasoned and, and make great things out of their experience. I mean, Falcom's a great team. It makes great games and it has a really solid, really dedicated fan base for that reason. And it has these these people who have been there for 20 years or more. And I think that's a really good bookend to this particular podcast, um, which is our longest podcast yet, Nadia. I think it's up there. Yeah, I don't think we've ever gone uh, this long, but there's a lot to cover this generation and I, I really enjoy talking about it. Yeah, wow, what I, a generation for RPGs, huh? It was a very good one, and I'm I'm happy we got a chance to talk about it in depth because it was a it was a very important generation, I think. 
And with that, we are going to skip the letter time this week because this episode ran a little bit long. But if you want to send us a letter when we can read it, send a note to cat.bailey at usgamer.net or DM me over on Twitter. Uh, Submit your track of the week entries and I will happily consider them for Acts of the Blood God. Thanks so much to David for sending that in. It ended up fitting really well with this episode. (laughs) It kind of did. I am on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash catbaileytv. Nadia is at Actung Kitten. Our newsletter comes out every single Wednesday and the podcast comes out every single Monday. And we are heading into a very busy month, a busy month and a half as we play all of the RPGs. Yakuza, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is an RPG, I'm told. (laughs) Cyberpunk 2077, whatever it comes out and everything is horrible. By the way, please go vote in the election. It's tomorrow. Make sure to drop off your ballot in a mailing location. Don't just mail it in. Go to the actual ballot box. Please participate in the political process and stay safe on election day. Good luck, everybody. And with that, Renati and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring.